First Chronicles, chapter number 20. If you're there, would you say amen? All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. I was reading this week, I stumbled across uh, the, uh, uh, a story about the world's tallest man. His name is Sultan Koshin, and he lives in a tiny village over in the country of Turkey. This old boy is eight feet and three inches tall. What happened was he had an abnormality at his birth. There was a, something on his pituitary gland or whatever, and it didn't shut the growth hormones off. So, you know, when normally people start, what, 14, 15, 16 years old, uh, or 17, however it is, uh, he didn't quit growing. And he grew to be 8 feet, 3 inches tall, still alive today. If you look up on the screens, here's a picture or two that kind of illustrates. There he is with his wife on his wedding day. Uh, his wife's five foot nine, I believe. He's eight feet, three inches tall. I mean, that guy is huge. Maybe we have another picture. There he is with just a normal person there. Eight feet, three inches tall. He's called or he's known as the gentle giant. That is Guinness World's Book of Record. It is the tallest man on earth today. He also holds Guinness World Book of Records for the largest hands. And the way they do that is they start at your wrist and they measure to the tip of your middle finger. If you were to get that guy and you measured from his wrist to the tip of his middle finger, it is almost one foot across that. Now to put that in perspective, uh, I'm six foot eight. But I did measure, <laughs> I measured my hand from my wrist to the tip of my middle, middle finger seven and a half inches across there. This guy is a foot across there. Then he also, or right up till recently, he held the Guinness World Book of Record for the largest foot on the earth. His foot measures one foot two inches long. So his foot is probably something uh, about like that, a foot and two inches long. Now, to help you put that in perspective, you're going to need some time. So if you want to buy him a pair of shoes for this coming Christmas, you're going to need some time to find it because you're going to have to look for a size 28 shoe for his foot. That's a big old boy. Can I have an amen? Now, if you're wondering why I'm talking about this giant, it's because our text this morning is about another giant. You know, one of the things we often read about in the Bible is, is, is giants. In fact, the word giant, or some form of it, giants in the plural, appears 20 times in our King James Bible, and all 20 times are in the Old Testament. Some synonyms for the word giant are these, colossal or enormous, gigantic, huge, humongous or monstrous. And there were many giants that lived in Bible days. In fact, there was a people, they were known as the Anakims, the sons of Anak, and they were all giants. You may remember uh, by way of history in the Old Testament, one of the reasons that the nation of Israel wouldn't move over and take possession of the promised land, at least initially, was because they were afraid of the giants that were in that land. Well, thinking about giants. I want to stop this morning and I want to read you the story of a giant in our Bible. And I want to begin 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Look, if you will, at verse number 6. Here's what we read about this one giant. The Bible said, And yet again there was war at Gath, where was a man of great stature, 
whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six on each hand and six on each foot. And he was also the son of the giant. But when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, slew him. These were born under the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, we're reading in our text this morning about another, another giant. Now, we, we understand just from that little description of him there in verse number 6, we understand a little bit about this giant, some facts about this giant. First of all, in verse number 6, we find out that he was from the land of Gath. Now that may, uh, for those of you that are students of the Bible, that may kind of ring a bell with you because we know of another giant that was from Gath. In fact, we know that when David fought with Goliath, that Goliath was from Gath. And then, of course, I think we also learned that Goliath evidently had some children because we're told here in verse number 6 that he was also the son of the giant. So evidently, we come to understand being from Gath, being the son of the giant, that he was actually one of the sons of Goliath. Goliath had some sons. We're also told there in verse number 6 that he was of great stature. Now, uh, when we read about his daddy, Goliath, we, we, we read that Goliath was, according to Bible terminology, he was six cubics and a span. Now, let me put that in today's measurements. Six cubics and a span would mean, that, uh, would mean in today's standard that Goliath was nine feet and six inches tall. Well, like father, like son, this giant was just as tall, if not taller, than his own daddy. In fact, can I tell you this? The giant that we're reading about in our text this morning would make that giant that I just showed you up on the screen a moment ago look like a miniature. In fact, uh, not only do we understand that he was impressive, he was huge, but we also uh, learn if, if his size is not intimidating enough, we also read there in verse number 6 that on both of his hands, he's got six fingers instead of five, and on both of his feet, he's got six toes instead of five. Now, there is a medical condition known as polydactylism, and that is when a person has multiple fingers or multiple toes. Poly, that means many. Dactyl means fingers. So we come to understand that he was not only humongous to look at, but if that wasn't intimidating enough, he also had six fingers on every hand. And then if you'll notice in verse 6 and verse 7, the one thing we're not told about him is we're not told about his name. We don't know what his name was. In fact, if you look back up in verse number 4 and verse number 5, these other giants were given their names. For instance, there in verse number 4, <clears throat> we read about uh, Sabakai and uh, uh, Sippai and verse number, boy, aren't you glad for your name, Tim and Mary and Susie. Uh, verse number 5, there was a war again and Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lamai, the brother of Goliath, uh, the Gittite. I mean, man, we understand these other giants are named, but when it comes to the giant that we're talking about in verse 6, verse 7, and verse number 8, we find that his name is not mentioned. I believe there's a reason for that. And the reason that I'm thinking about maybe that this giant was not named is because he comes to represent a lot of various giants that you and I have in our lives. We all have giants that we have to fight, and so this giant really represents, what it really represents to me is a stronghold that is in our lives. A stronghold 
that is in our lives. Now, in case you're sitting here this morning and you don't know what a stronghold is, I asked them to put a, a good definition of what a stronghold is up here on the screen. So here's what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a sin in your life that has a stronghold on you. Anything in your life, any type of sin in your life that has a strong hold on you is a strong hold. A stronghold. And, and many of us in this room this morning battle these strongholds in our life. You may remember that when the nation of Israel moved into the land of Canaan and they started the process of ridding the land of its inhabitants, God told them, when you get over there in that land, rid the land, totally drive out the inhabitants of that land. If you settle down among that crowd, that crowd will influence you to start worshiping their gods. You have got to get rid of all the inhabitants of that land. Well, we know that the nation of Israel moved over there into that land, and first thing you know, uh, they started driving those inhabitants out, but we're told that there were some people over there in the land of Canaan that had iron chariots, and because the nation of Israel was afraid of those iron chariots, they left that group of the Canaanites alone, and guess what happened? Just exactly what God said would happen, they influenced those people to start serving their false gods, and the reason that they did is because they were afraid of their iron chariot. Can I tell you what a stronghold is? A stronghold is an iron chariot sin. It's something that we know that we need to get rid of, but we just settle down with it and we start to live with it. Let me tell you what a stronghold sin is. It's always one that is tripping you up. It's a sin that messes you up. A sin that constantly keeps you down and dirty and defeated. A sin that even though you try very hard. It's just a sin that you just can't turn loose of. Or maybe I should say it like this. It's a sin that won't turn loose of you. A stronghold is not like other sins. There are some sins in our life that we can defeat with relatively, uh, with relative ease. For instance, I don't battle uh, robbing banks. At least up to this point in my Christian life. I don't battle Robin Banks. I don't know what it is about me, but I've just never been, I've never been uh, addicted to Robin Banks. Thought about it a time or two, but never done it. I don't battle that sin. That's one that I easily overcome. There are some sins in your life that you easily overcome. There are some sins we have no difficulty staying away from. We can keep our distance from them. But then there are other sins that like an octopus. It wraps its tentacles around us. And no matter how hard we try to break that grip that is on our life, we cannot break free. That is what the Bible refers to as a stronghold. It is a sin that you know you shouldn't be involved in. It is a sin that you know it's wrong and it is destructive, but it has such a hold on you, you cannot turn loose of that sin. Now, the great thing we learn from this passage is this, that this giant that was torturing the nation of Israel, and I'll read that to you in a moment, that this giant that was torturing them was eventually killed by one of David's servants. However, and, and let me say this, your stronghold, your giant can also be defeated. But the truth of the matter is, we have got to learn how to 
defeat the strongholds, the giants that's in our lives. If we don't, those giants will lead us down the road to self-destruction. Now, I don't know who I'm speaking to here this morning. Maybe, maybe you walked in this building today and, man, you say right up front, I'm telling you, I know what that stronghold is in my life. I know what it is. I, 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 I don't even have to speculate. I don't even have to search long. I understand. I've got a stronghold. I've got a sin in my life that has a stronghold on me. Let me tell you something. If you're here this morning, you say, man, I would love to get free from that stronghold in my life. Can I tell you something? You've come to the right place this morning. Because by the time this message is over today, I want to tell you how you can break free from that stronghold that is in your life. You don't have to self-destruct. You don't have to be, live in bondage. You can be free from that giant of the stronghold in your life. So let's begin this morning. And I want to use this giant as a picture of a stronghold. And let's talk a little bit about him. Now look there at verse 6. Let me talk a little, uh, uh, number one, a little bit about the strength of this giant, the strength of this giant. Now, I got to tell you something. You've got to know eight foot uh, or over nine foot tall, like that eight foot three inch guy we just looked at a moment ago. You got to know this giant was strong. I'm talking about the one that's in our text. I'm sure, I mean, just by itself, his grip was tenacious enough uh, because no doubt his hands were just huge enough as they were. I mean, man, if, if Koshin Sultan had uh, uh, a foot-long hand, can you just imagine how this, this giant that we're reading about, can you just imagine how big his hands must have been? Why, if he were on the earth today, he would bump old Sultan Koshin off because he would uh, uh, no doubt have the Guinness World Book of Records for the world's largest hand. But now you've got to factor in this. Not only does he have large hands, but wait a minute, he's got an extra finger on those hands hands as well. The Bible said there in verse number six, he has six fingers on every hand. Now I'm sure just by itself his grip was strong enough, but when you throw in that extra finger, can I tell you something, that made his grip all the more stronger. I'm sure that when this giant that we're reading about in our text this morning, when he got a hold of you, he made you think, he made you feel like you would never, ever get free. I'm telling you when he clamped down on you with them six fingers and that gigantic hand, it probably made you feel like you were in a vice grip. It made you feel like you were stuck. There was no way to get free from the grip of this giant. You know, I wonder if there's people sitting here in this room today and there's a sin, a stronghold that's got a hold of you in so much that you cannot get free from it. Like this giant, it has such strength. It has such a tenacious grip on your life, such power, such a hold on you that it almost seems like there's no hope of ever getting rid of of this sin. And by the way, let me stop and just remind us all. I'm not just preaching to lost people this morning. I'm preaching to saved people as well. We know, we understand that lost people are held in the bondage of sin. You know, isn't it amazing how the devil convinces us that, uh, you know, if you're not saved and you're in control of your own life, isn't it amazing how he convinces us that we're free to do whatever we want to do? We're living this great life. It's freedom. We can go here, do this, drink that, smoke. I mean, we do whatever... And he, and he does such a wonderful job that we don't even realize that the more we do it, the deeper in bondage we become. 
How many lost people, maybe some sitting in this room today, people sitting right here, and you're in bondage to some kind of sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe you've got this terrible thing going on in your life, and you don't want nobody to know about it because you're, you're humiliated by it. And oh, how many times you have tried to set it down, to set it aside, to be done with it, only to go right back to it and pick it up again. But I'm not just talking to lost people this morning. I'm talking to saved people in this room as well. You see, it is one thing. When we come to Jesus, thank God we get set free from the bondage of our sin. Aren't you glad whom the Son sets free? He's free indeed. The Bible said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Thank God for those that are saved this morning. We have been set free from the bondage of our sin. But how many of us know? How many of us understand? Many times we get set free from the bondage of our sin only to go right back into the chains and the shackles of sin once again because of our rebellion and our disobedience to God. Let me illustrate what I'm trying to say. Several years ago, I got a letter here from a member of our church. It was an anonymous letter from a member here in our church. And let me just say this. I have never tried to find out who wrote me that letter. I didn't carry it to the officers and say, hey, can y'all take this downtown, dust it for fingerprints? The, the fact of the matter is, I don't even, it, 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 to me, it does matter, but it don't matter because of what the letter said. It was a letter that was written by one of our ladies in our church, and she was writing about her husband. And as she wrote that letter about her husband in that anonymous letter, she described how many times, her, uh, how many times she had seen her husband uh, look at pornography on the Internet. And in this letter, she said, I've, I, I've called him a numerous times looking at it. And she said, just to be honest with you, preacher, my husband is addicted to pornography. She said, I have seen him before. I mean, just so broken over that sin in his life. I've seen him literally weep over it and beg God to forgive him and beg God to help him to get over this bondage of pornography. Only, she said in the letter, her words, see him get right up off his knees, go right back to the computer, turn it right back on again, and begin to look at it some more. Can I tell you something? That's a stronghold, friend. That stuff has got that man in such bondage to this very day, or, 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 or to that very day, he was in such bondage to that sin. And by the way, can I stop and say, you can't please God as long as you've got that stronghold in your life. And by the way, that's not God's will for you to live like that to start with. God sets you free from that. God saved you from a life of sin. God let us off the chain, and God helped me and you to live in the freedom and the liberty that Jesus intends for us to live in, not in bondage, but in freedom. That's what God intends for your life. Let me show you a good verse. Look at this verse right here, Galatians 5, verse number 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has done what? Made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We have been set free. We have been let off the chain. And God, help me and you not to go back on the chain once Jesus has died to let us off the chain. It's not God's will for you to be hooked on drugs. It's not God's plan for you to be hooked on alcohol. It's not God's will for you to be in bondage to pornography or immorality or gambling or whatever that may be in your life. You have been set free. Don't don't go back into bondage again. 
the strength of this giant. Oh, how strong he must have been. Impressive hand, massive hands, but then throw in a six finger and think about the grip that he had upon those that he laid those hands on, the strength of this giant. But then notice number two, not only the strength of this giant, but I want you to look at verse number seven. I want to talk a little bit about the strategy of this giant, his strategy. Now, if it wasn't enough that he was humongous, colossal, uh, whatever else those words, huge, that I gave you to start with, if it wasn't bad enough that he was so fearful just because of his, his impressive stature. Next, we read in verse number 7 that he starts defying the nation of Israel. The word defied there in verse number 7 simply means this. He taunted the nation of Israel. We remember what his daddy did back during the days of David. Remember how that Saul and the nation of Israel had encamped in the valley of Eli. They were intending to go to war with the Philistines. And the Philistines were on the other side of the valley. And I mean, it looked like war was going to break out until this impressive giant by the name of Goliath walked out from among the ranks of the Philistines, got down there in the middle of that valley, and started taunting or defying the nation of Israel. Send me a man to fight with me, he said. Bring him on down here. If he beats me, we'll be your servants. And if I beat you, you'll be our servants. And the Bible said that he cussed Israel by his God. You know what he was doing? He was defying the nation of Israel. Well, the same thing is said about this giant right here. He was running his mouth. If his, if his stature wasn't intimidating enough, now he opens his mouth and he begins to defy the nation of Israel. I think probably the same thing that happened back in the days of Goliath is now happening once again in our text this morning. He is running his mouth to the nation of Israel. He is defying them. Maybe he was saying stuff like this. Listen to me. Maybe he was saying to them, you're mine. You're no match for me. You cannot defeat me. You'll always be my servant. You'll never get away from me. I own you. Give up. Accept the fact things are never going to change. Accept defeat. If you can't beat us, then just come on over here and join us. How many times has the giant of your stronghold said the same thing to you? How many times has that sin that you've tried to turn loose of said this to you? You're mine. You're no match for me. You cannot defeat me. You'll always be my servant. You'll never get away from me. I own you. Give up. Accept the fact this is just the way things are going to be. I remember years, a couple of years ago, one of our families in our church called me and asked me to meet them at the King's Hot Dogs up here. And they said, we'd like to talk to you. So I went up there and sat down and in walked this man and his wife. And uh, they had just found out recently that one of their children was involved in homosexuality. And I mean to tell you, their heart was crushed. And they sat aside, uh, sat across the table from me at, at the hot dog place, and we talked, and I tried to bring what comfort I could to them, and I'll be praying, I'll, I'll certainly do what I can. Hey, I'll talk to your child. I'll do anything that I can to try to help your child. I just want you to know that I love you. My heart breaks for you. I mean, I really, I poured my heart out to them in return. 
And I never will forget what the man looked at me and said. He said, my wife tells me that we might as well just accept the fact this is the way things are going to be. I looked back at that man and I said, I would never accept the fact that that's the way things have just got to be. I would never give in. I would never give up. I mean, man, to my dying day, I would be screaming from the top of my lungs, this is not right. It's against God. It's unnatural. I would never accept the fact this is the way it's just got to be. But how many times has your giant told you, accept it, man. You can't beat me. I've got you. I own you. You'll never, ever defeat me. You're no match. I, I own you. You are mine. And here's the thing. Because of your past track record, we start to believe that mess. You see, we've tried so many times to break that giant's grip on our life. We've tried so many times to, to set it aside only to get up and go right back to it once again. We've tried and we've tried and we've tried and we've failed and we failed and we failed and that grip has pulled us back time and time again until finally, because of our track record, we give up, we give out, we give in, and we accept the fact this is just the way things are going to be in my life. Who am I speaking to this? morning and you've accepted that. I've just got to learn to live with this. I'll never get victory over this. I'll live with this for the rest of my life. The devil looks at you and says, you're nothing but a drunk and that's all you're ever going to be is a drunk. You're nothing but a dope head, a drug addict, and that's all you'll ever be. You're nothing but a pornographer. You're nothing but a homosexual. You're nothing but a gambler and that's the way things will be. You're not going to change it. You might as well accept it. This is just the way it's going to be. Can I tell you something? That sin and that Satan says to us, you'll never be free. And you know what we say? Because we've tried and we've failed and we've tried and we've failed and we've failed and we've failed and we've failed. We finally give up and say, you know something? You're right. This is just the way things have got to be. And we surrender to it. We give in because of, of, of all that's going on in our life. And we self-destruct. We're on a fast track to absolutely nowhere. We live a miserable existence. And we get to thinking, there's no hope for me. I'm destined to be this way for the rest of my life. Can I ask you something? What six-fingered giant's got his grip on you today? And you can't, you don't think there's any hope. He defied the nation of Israel. Watch this. The strength of this giant. The strategy of this giant. Are y'all with me? But I want to talk number three about the slaying of this giant. Look at verse 7. But when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, slew him. It almost seems like to me it was like it was back in the days of Goliath. You know, the nation of Israel were hid out in dens and rocks and caves because they were afraid of Goliath. Man, Goliath would come out for 40 days, man. He came out and throwed rocks at them and kicked dirt and cussed their God. I mean, made fun of them, told them they would never beat him. There was no hope. It was over. They might as well accept the fact. And Israel believed that. They were over there, hid out in the, de in the caves and the dens, and, the and they just accepted it. They were going to live in that misery and dread and fear and bondage for the rest of their life because they thought there was no hope whatsoever. And that seems to be pretty much the nation of Israel to this day. Once again in our text, they thought there's no hope. It'll never get better. I might as well just accept it. This is the way things are going to be in my life. But there was one old boy who said, nope, 
I am not going to accept this. There was one old boy who simply said, I don't care how big he is. I don't care how many toes he's got. I don't care how many fingers he's got. I don't care, I don't care what he says. I'm tired of living like this. Somebody's got to do something about this. Enough is enough. And he decided he was going to do something about it. Look at verse 7. His name was Jonathan. And the Bible simply says in verse number 7 that Jonathan, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, went out there and killed this old giant. He got rid of that, that humongous six-fingered giant. He killed him. He was done away with. He was silenced once and for all. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Preacher, man, I'm so happy for Jonathan, and I'm so happy for the nation of Israel. That is wonderful they got rid of that thing, but you, haven't, you still haven't told me how I can get rid of this giant in my life. You still haven't told me how to break that six-fingered grip, that stronghold that's in my life. You've told us about them, but what about us, preacher? I am struggling with this. Well, I already told you how to do it. Yeah. Look at that name there in verse 7. The name is Jonathan. You know what the word Jonathan, the name Jonathan means? It simply means this, God's gift. You know how you can break the stronghold of sin that has you bound in your walk of life? God has given you a gift. Or look at me, God will give you a gift that will help you to break the stronghold in your life. You see, God's gift to you is His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ can help break the grip that the six-fingered giant has got a hold of you in your life. He can break that. And I know before you say, preacher, I, I don't believe that. Let me read you some verses. Look at this. 1 John 4, 4. You're a God, little children, and have overcome them because, read this with me, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What a promise. Look at this verse right here. Isaiah 59, 19, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard. When that old giant grabs back a hold of you and starts trying to drag you back, the Spirit of the Lord, Oh, Lord, send the power just now. Oh, Lord, send... I mean, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard. Look at this verse. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. God said sin don't have to rule your life. You don't have to be the servant of sin. It don't have to be this way. Look at this verse right here. Nay, in all these things, we are more than what? That doesn't say we're more than conquered. That doesn't say we're more than defeated. That says we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Look at this verse right here. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. He said, I may fall, I may fail, I may slip back, but don't you worry, I'm going to get back up again. I may stumble in the darkness, but thank God he's the light of the world and he will help me. That's what the writer said. Look at this verse right here. Jeremiah 20, verse 11. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. 
God is with you as the, as the powerful, the mighty God. He is with me. Listen, the, the way to overcome your stronghold, the way to cast off the grip of that six-fingered giant that's squeezing down on your life, promising you it'll never get better. There's no hope. Thank God God has given us a gift that can break the grip of the giant this morning. He can do it. What you need to do this morning is just bring it to Jesus. I read about this lady this week. She lived out in St. Louis, Missouri, and she was a saved lady. She was a Christian lady. She met a man. And as so often happens, especially in these days, after, after conversing and, I guess, dating or whatever, they decided that they would move in together. Now, I know this is the 21st century, and I get all that. But can I tell you something? It has never been the will of God for a man and a woman to cohabit together, to live together without the benefit of marriage. I'd like to say to every one of our teenagers in this room this morning, that is not at all God's plan for your life. And isn't it amazing how the devil tries to rationalize that in our day by saying something like this? Well, you know, you don't want to go through a messy divorce, so just move in and try it, and if it don't work out, then you don't have to go through the process of divorce. He tries to make it, it, tries to make it just seem so appealing to us, but I just got to stop and say one more time, Culture may change, people's opinions may change, society may change, but you hear me and hear me well, God's Word will never, ever change. And if it was wrong back in the 1800s, 1900s, it's still wrong to this very day. But this woman met this man, she moved him in. They moved in together. Well, uh, it didn't take long. And by the way, if you're really saved, uh, God will begin to convict you of that. Uh, her, she really... Her conscience really began to be bothered. She knew that she was doing wrong because it was wrong to live together without the benefit of marriage. So she asked the man to move back out. Here's what he said. You invited me here. My clothes are here. My other belongings are here. I'm not leaving. She said, I'm not asking you to leave. I'm telling you to leave. He laughed at her. And he said, make me leave. You can't put me out. So then she pleaded with him. She cried. She said, I'm through with this relationship. He said, I don't care. I'm not going anywhere. She was so embarrassed about what she had done. He laughed at her. She couldn't get rid of him. So one day someone of her, her friends suggested that she go talk to a lawyer. And a lawyer sent her to see a, a judge that he knew well. She told him the situation and the judge issued an injunction that said the man had no legal right to be there. He must leave. Well, she went back home that day with that piece of paper in her hand, and she, uh, she showed it to him, and she said, Go. He started crying. He started whining. He started complaining. He pleaded with her, but she insisted. She said, Get your stuff and get out of here. And after a little while, he gathered his belongings, and he left. Now, when I read that story, here's what I thought. That's just like the devil. We allow the devil to have a place in our life. I mean, we don't have to give him a big opening, just a little opening, and he walks in. And when he walks in, he brings all the filth and the garbage and the, and the messes, and he brings it right into our life. And first thing you know, we wake up and realize, oh, my goodness, I have given place to the devil in my life. And we look at him and we say, Go. He laughs at us. <laughs> we say, get out of here. 
No way. You can't make me leave. I am here to stay. So here's what we have to do. We have to go to the mighty God of heaven. We have to see our attorney, our, the perpetuator, our advocate, the Lord Jesus, who gives us an injunction who, to come back and look in the face of the devil and say, get your dirty belongings and in the name of Jesus and through the power of his shed blood, get out of my life. And that's what some of us need to do in this room this morning. Some of us just in the, this room just say, man, I've given the devil a place in my life. He's brought all this filth, this drama, this mess into my life. And in the name of Jesus, I've had enough. And in the power of his shed blood, get your filthy garbage and get out of my life. Man, he can't do nothing against the name of Jesus and the power of his shed blood. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. You know, they say that the journey of a thousand miles begins with just one step. And can I tell you something this morning? If you won't journey into the land of freedom and liberty that God intends for you to have, I'm going to ask you to make that first step toward Jesus today. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Why don't you this morning make a step toward Jesus? Let's bow our heads for prayer.